More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'm Kelly, your host, and I want to thank you as always for taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. Can't do this without you. Definitely wouldn't want to do it without you tuning in or downloading to listen. And I got a pro tip today. I'm drinking a cup of tea. This has literally nothing to do with this podcast except to say that having a nice glass of hot tea really helps me get in a nice, calm, and soothing mood. And I found an incredible tea. Actually, somebody gave it to me for Christmas. It's Harney and Sons, that's the brand, and the flavor is hot cinnamon. And if you like cinnamon like I do, it is literally the best tea on earth. It kind of tastes like a cup of steaming hot red hots, and I love it. And I don't know, I just thought I'd throw that out there since I am enjoying that today. Very soothing, very relaxing, very tasty, and feels a lot like self-care. So there you have it, a little self-care tip for you today. If you do not like like cinnamon red hots and cinnamon candies and things like that, you will hate this tea. So just FYI, but if you love it like I do, yum. Well, several months ago, I think it was back in August of 22, I asked a question here on the podcast, something to the effect of why hardened criminals more angered by child molesters than the church is. And it's a question that popped up for me over and over and over again, and not just in comparison to hardened criminals, because I mean, I think that if that's the bar that we're setting, the bar is very, very, very low, and it's a little bit ridiculous, which makes it crazy when you really think about the fact that many times it seems as though hardened criminals care a lot more about uh, the evil of child molestation than the church does. But not even using that bar. I just ask myself over and over and over again, why is the church not more angry about childhood sexual abuse? Why is the church not more angry about people who pretend to be these spiritual, holy, wonderful people, and then they go around molesting little children, living this double life, living this life of complete and utter evil. And then it just seems like the church wants to come in and clean everything up and make it look as pretty as possible, as fast as possible. And typically the way that we do that is by turning all of our attention onto the perpetrator, and I mean all of our positive attention onto the perpetrator being transformed and being repentant and being forgiven from, you know, the horrible, horrible, not just sin, but crime they've committed against a child or multiple children, and then all of the negative attention And all the shaming seems to be focused on the victims because, listen, when you're trying to clean up a mess, it's pretty easy 
to turn to a perpetrator and get a few tears out of them and hear an I'm sorry and then say, oh my goodness, God has has forgiven you and, and God's love and forgiveness are incredible and you can't do anything so bad that God can't forgive it, et cetera, et cetera. And you can make that look really, really pretty and sound really pretty. Well, my goodness, you know, we've all committed these horrible sins, but God is this God of forgiveness and it's this radical forgiveness that he'll just swoop in and, and take any ugly sin and turn it around and use it for his glory. Well, that part is pretty easy to clean up because every perpetrator, listen, <laughs> everyone who is caught molesting a child wants that kind of forgiveness. They want that kind of radical forgiveness and radical grace from the church and everyone they know because it's a pretty disgusting thing that they've done. And they don't want that to be the focus because if the focus is on what has been done, the damage that has been committed, then the ugliness is just there for everybody to see and to focus on. And so I think that it sort of works like the perpetrator's desires for the situation kind of work in tandem with the church's desire for the situation because the church typically wants to just clean everything up and make it as pretty as possible as fast as possible. And we all know, like if you've been through sexual abuse, or if you've watched anyone that you love or care about go through sexual abuse, then you know, it's not something that can just become clean and pretty in 30 seconds. It's not enough to just be like, oh, please forgive me, I did something wrong. And then for a person who has had sexual abuse perpetrated against them to be able to just be like, okay, no problem. I forgive you. Let's hug it out. You know, it doesn't work like that. But perpetrators want it to work like that because that works in their favor. And churches want it to work like that because that works in their favor. So today on the podcast, I want to talk about radical forgiveness and radical grace and how churches and perpetrators want to use this to bury victims of sexual abuse and to bury the truth of sexual abuse and why I think that that's harmful. And one of the things that has inspired today's episode is investigation discovery. I watch the ID channel all the time. There might be something wrong with me. I don't know. I love to watch the mysteries. And I think that I've mentioned this on the podcast in the past that I love watching ID, watching things like forensic files. I, I like to hear about these stories, uh, murders that are committed, kidnappings, whatever they are, and to kind of watch the case through all of its phases in the beginning and your, your suspects and people being questioned and a mystery being unraveled. Again, there there might be something wrong with me that I love to watch that but apparently I'm not the only one because there's like I was going to say an entire channel dedicated to it but there are multiple cable channels dedicated to like mysteries and dedicated to murders and how they've been solved and true crime apparently we have an appetite for that or an interest in it in the country and I don't watch these shows and think oh wow people were murdered amazing I, I hate it and I feel for the families and it's horrible um, but that just the process of solving these crimes I do find fascinating and I cannot look away so yes I watch the ID channel all the time and I find it really I, I guess interesting would probably be the word I'm going to use here. I'm not sure if that's the perfectly appropriate word, but it's interesting that in many of the cases where I'm watching these stories unfold, they remind me so much of sexual abuse in the church and so much of how some of these victims are handled, 
how some of the perpetrators behave, it kind of mirrors what we deal with every single day in the sexual abuse survivor community within the church. And this weekend was no exception as I was watching a couple of these shows on ID and I just was dumbfounded again at some of the similarities and then I got angry again (laughs) with the church and how they so often mishandle, not just mishandle allegations of abuse, but they mishandle victims of abuse, which I think is, is the most important thing here. Sometimes we get caught up in allegations themselves and how church mishandles the allegations when somebody comes forward and and they don't handle the investigation properly and they don't handle going to the authorities properly. But the reason all of that matters is because of the victims of the abuse and what they're actually mishandling are victims. They're not just mishandling a situation because I think that that can make it just a little too sterile and that can make it seem like, oh, we mishandled a situation. So we're sorry about that. But no, you're not actually just mishandling a situation when you mishandle allegations of sexual abuse in your church. You're mishandling victims and they're people, they're human beings who are being mistreated in some pretty abhorrent ways. And it serves as like a re-traumatization, a re-victimization. The abuse itself is terrible. But then when people who should care and who could care and do something about it and really serve as a healing vessel for victims of sexual abuse, when those people mishandle abuse victims, it's pretty tragic the effect that that can have on actual human beings who have gone through actual hell and are reaching out for help. So I want to talk about a couple of cases. And the first one is something that shouldn't surprise me at all because we see it all the time. If you follow anyone uh, like I do on Facebook, I follow a lot of accounts that speak out on domestic violence. So when I see cases being shared on Facebook a lot, it ceases to be surprising anymore. When you see um, recently, just weeks ago, the man, I think it was in maybe in Utah, who murdered his entire family, his wife, his five kids, and his wife's mom, and then killed himself. We see stories like that being shared constantly on social media. We see them constantly in the news. Violence against women is not like this new thing. It's something that's existed since the beginning of time. And it's insane, like the epidemic that it seems to be. So I wasn't surprised when I watched on the Investigation Discovery Channel a story about a police officer and his wife and his stepkids. They had all moved to Hawaii and they joined this church and he just seemed like, of course, this pillar in the community and he was teaching Bible studies and Sunday school and he was a very legalistic person who was all about like, you know, scripture says this, 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 and we all have to comply. And he just seemed like this very godly, very spiritual person. He was also a police officer, so you would think he's trying to uphold the law. But instead, he was becoming an abusive husband um, to the point where when he realized his wife was thinking about leaving him because she got tired of the abuse and realized being a good wife biblically did not mean that she had to submit to all kinds of abuse, then he ended up killing her. Like he shot her and trigger warning, I'm going to just tell you what happened in these episodes. Sorry, I should have given you that trigger warning a little while ago, but it is violence against women and children in this episode of Survivor Sanctuary. So just going to spell it out. There's gun violence as well. Um, He shot his wife 
in the face and neck like 15 times at point blank range. Just that was the rage running through him. And he simply did that because she was going to divorce him. And I guess he felt like because he was the man of the house and he was the spiritual authority that she had no right to leave, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to get into some of the craziness that's taught in churches regarding submission and regarding roles for husbands and wives. And I'm not going to get into all that. We could debate that for hours and hours and hours. But he felt entitled to doing whatever he wanted to his wife and physically abusing her and didn't think that she had any right to want to leave. And so he killed her. And the parallel that I drew, I think that's pretty obvious in this case, was just hearing the interviews with the friends and families and church members that knew this family and hearing how they talked and all of them saying like, he was such a great person. You know, he was a member of our church and he was so like, he was there every time the doors were opened and he was very passionate about the Bible and teaching God's word and following God's word. He, he wanted, you know, his wife to attend marriage retreats and he would leave her scriptures laying around the house on post-it notes to read, you know, and like he was just very much a person who everybody thought was super, super godly because of the way he acted in church. And he ended up being a murderer who took a beautiful soul out of the world, who took a mom away from her kids, who who took a woman away from her entire family and all of her friends, uh, just because he didn't think she had any right to leave. And I always draw that parallel, I think, when I'm watching these shows, and it ever involves anyone from a Christian community, because you hear people saying the same things over and over again. Oh, this person was such an upstanding person. They went to church all the time. They really seemed to love the Lord, and they cared so much about following God. And it is just, it serves as that reminder that how someone behaves in a church service and how someone behaves on a Sunday morning is not enough to convince people, or it shouldn't be enough to convince people that that person is actually good. And I know that that sucks a little bit because you're thinking, how do I know if I can trust people then? But I feel like if you're listening to this podcast, you kind of already know that someone acting super spiritual and quoting lots of scripture or being a good preacher or following the Christian rules outwardly and, and in appearance, I feel like most of us probably know that that's not necessarily something that can be trusted. I feel like we've probably experienced that because most of us having survived sexual abuse within the church were probably abused by someone who acted very much on the outside as though they love the Lord. And then inwardly, what were they? Ravenous wolves. And they were doing horrifying things to us and to other children and to other people. Like we've seen it over and over again. So that's the parallel that I drew from this story. But there was another episode, and I don't remember the show. I, I don't remember if it was The Monster Inside or Evil Lives Here, I think is one of the shows that I watch. I watch so many of them on ID that they all start to run together, and it's hard for me to remember the actual show that I was watching because no matter the show, you're watching the same thing over and over again. Basically, someone has committed a horrific crime, and the mystery has to be solved. I think it might have been Evil Lives Here. And there was a woman who married a man. She already had a couple of kids, I believe, from a previous marriage. Her dad was a pastor, and this man was a person she met at her dad's church. 
and they became friends and then they started dating and then they ended up married and they had several kids together. And I think she began to see some red flags in this relationship early on. And I think at one point she did try to leave, but he swore that he was going to change and he was going to be better. And so she ended up giving him a second chance and and not leaving. Now, I don't remember the extent of everything that he was doing. I do believe that he was becoming abusive and either bordering on physical abuse or actually becoming physically abusive. And so she had tried to leave at one point. He swore he was changed. He swore he was going to be different. And she ended up staying. And unfortunately, he had not changed. He was not different. And I guess when he felt threatened that she may leave again, he perpetrated something that's just like, it's so horrific. I can't even imagine her going through this. And I just... I want to explain what happened, not just to tell you about a show that I watched, but because of how it relates to what we're talking about within the church, how the church kind of tends to weaponize this idea of radical forgiveness or radical grace. Um, This woman, she had a gun held on her by her husband and her son was there. It was her husband's stepson. And I believe that he had just uh, graduated from high school. He was in college and her husband held a gun on her and her son and told them they had to go to the basement. He tied them up in the basement. And then he asked this woman if she wanted to see her other kids. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly how it all unfolded. I'm still a little bit traumatized by watching it. And again, trigger warning, it's horrible. So he called her other kids downstairs to be with her and basically killed them in front of her, um, one at a time, one of her daughters first, and then her son. And then I believe that he killed uh, their two daughters that they had together. And he literally killed them in front of her so she could watch her own children die. And I cannot even imagine, I can't just, it doesn't make any sense to me. And this woman was very calm and very collected, Um, When she was talking, I'm sure that she has found her own way to live through something this horrifying. And I just couldn't imagine how she could even basically like be alive anymore and and just talking about this horrifying thing that she had gone through. I don't know how you survive something like that. I know it's possible. And, you know, people who are able to live through things like that and find a way to move on have the utmost respect and kind of like I'm in awe of them because I don't get it. Uh, And that's kind of how I viewed this, just listening to the horrifying details of what she had to watch and experience. And she just laid it all out on the table and detailed the things that she saw and heard as this man murdered her children in front of her. And then he tried to kill her. He shot her several times. He cut her throat with a box cutter. And I know it's it's horrifying. It's why I gave you the trigger warning. But I think it's important. I think it is important to give these details for what we're about to get into. Um, he then called 911 and said, basically, hey, I just killed some people in my house. And he told them kids and their mom. And he said, the kids are dead. And she's the only one that survived. I tried to kill her. I, I, I cut her up. And, I mean, he's saying like they've had the actual 911 recording that we're listening to. And he just matter of factly is telling the 911 people, yeah, I killed them. They came. Uh, they arrested him. They were able to save her life. You know, thank God. Although I'm sure there are many times in her life that she's wished that they weren't able to save her because, again, 
How do you survive losing four of your children in such a horrifying manner? It's just, it's incomprehensible. I can't wrap my brain around that. But it was what happened at the end of this episode that really just got me, like got me to the point where I was again enraged, I think, over how the church treats victims. And, you know, normally we're not talking about victims of murder. We're obviously normally talking on this podcast about victims of sexual abuse, but the parallel here just struck me. I told you earlier that this woman uh, was the daughter of a pastor. And when her husband was being sentenced for murdering her children in front of her and then attempting to murder her simply for trying to leave him, her dad, the pastor of the church, wrote a letter to the judge, as happened so many times in so many of our stories when it comes to sexual abuse. He wrote a letter to the judge asking for leniency and saying things like, you know, we've talked to him and we really think that he's he's learned a lot. He's different now since when this first happened. And, you know, we believe that he's learned a lot and he he's not a danger to society. And basically, please be lenient. Don't give him a long sentence. And the clincher was, when he is released, we will welcome him back into our church. No questions asked. And I'm watching this woman who's gone through something that is so horrifying, most of us won't even be able to comprehend it. I'm watching her face and it's just, her face is just stone. You know, there's no, there's not even any frowning. There's no smiling. It's kind of just a numbness. And she says, you know, I don't really have anything to do with my dad anymore. Um, She didn't say it in anger. She didn't say, I'll never forgive him. He's horrible and I hate him. She just said, yeah, I really don't have much to do with my dad anymore. Um, And the fact that, that he could do that and, you know, ask for leniency for the person who, who did this, uh, we really don't have much of a relationship. And I just like, of course, they made my blood boil as these things tend to, but it did because it just brought me back, of course, to what we go through so often in churches. And it's watching churches rally around perpetrators and discard victims. And that not only a pastor could do this for any one of his parishioners, that he could say, oh, please judge, be lenient in your sentencing of this man. Don't go too hard on him. We think he's changed and we'll welcome him in our church with open arms anytime. And, you know, he is welcome here. That anyone could do that after this brutality is awful but that a dad could do it to his own daughter in the name of being, you know, the pastor of the church, that he could do that and basically abandon his own child in favor of a perpetrator. It's like, it baffles the mind, but at the same time, it wasn't surprising at all because it's what we see all the time when it comes to victims of sexual abuse. And We'll see it applauded by Christians all over the world. Oh my goodness, like that's the forgiveness of God, you know, that no matter what you've done, he'll forgive you. And and listen, nobody's saying that this person who committed all these murders can't be forgiven. That's not what I'm saying at all. No one's saying that this pastor shouldn't have extended, you know, forgiveness to a man who he thought was truly repentant. But to ask 
for the consequences of a crime this horrific to be erased in the name of forgiveness is not radical grace. It's not radical forgiveness. It's, I want to call it radical stupidity, but it's also a radical abandonment and re-victimization of the vulnerable. It's radical recklessness. You're not slathering grace on someone. What you're doing is turning your back on victims. What you're doing is throwing victims to the wolves and saying, well, we're going to use this balm of radical grace to basically erase everything that's been done. And so the perpetrator is off scot-free and welcome with open arms in our church. And we're going to leave the victims who don't have it that easy, unfortunately, to fend for themselves. Why do we celebrate this in Christianity? Why do we celebrate this in churches? Why do we celebrate this idea of a radical grace or a radical forgiveness for people who have done some of the most horrific things you could ever try to wrap your mind around? And I think a better question is, why are church members, pastors, parishioners, brothers and sisters in Christ, if that's what you want to call them, why are we working so hard to rescue perpetrators from the consequences of their disgusting, wicked, vile, predatory crimes. Because I want to tell you, trying to rescue people from the consequences of their sin is not forgiveness. It's not grace. It's the opposite. Like if if you want to have mercy on someone, advise them to submit in repentance to the consequences of what they have done. Because forgiveness and grace and mercy are not synonymous with no consequence. Like in order to prove that you've forgiven someone, there has to be no consequence to their crime. In order for this woman who whose husband was so disgusting and evil that he wanted to force her to watch as her children were murdered in front of her face, like in order for her to prove that she's forgiven him, She has to be down with him getting a light sentence. She has to, what, ask the judge, please don't make him go to prison. I'm sure he's really sorry, and I've forgiven him because that's what Jesus wants me to do. So he shouldn't have to go to jail. Shouldn't have to serve any time. You know, we'll just let him come back to our church, and we'll keep an eye on him to make sure he doesn't murder anybody else. Like, it's completely ridiculous that we got this idea somewhere that radical grace, radical forgiveness, which is, I think it's complete bullcrap anyway. Yes, I believe that God's grace in forgiving us of our sins and in loving us regardless of what we've done, that's pretty radical. But I don't think that it's the kind of, quote, radical grace, unquote, that we talk about in churches where you have to just abandon the victim of every crime. You have to abandon the victim of sexual abuse and and anything predatory that's been perpetrated, you have to completely and totally abandon them in favor of slathering some weird, radical forgiveness and grace on a predator and a perpetrator who should be radically repentant. Why don't we want that? Why don't we say, hey, if you truly are sorry for what you've done, you know, your repentance will show that. And radical repentance to me would be submitting and submitting humbly to whatever punishment your crime deserves. 
to me, that's radical repentance. And that's something that I think that a church should focus on when it comes to something like, well, oh, I don't know, brutal murder and the sexual abuse of small children, innocent little children. But instead, we are reckless. Like we're reckless with the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that we just hand out willy nilly to anyone who says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. You know, like I just can't imagine how a father could look at his daughter. I don't, I don't imagine how he could come before God and be like, you know, hey, this is what I'm doing to my kid today. I am basically begging a judge to have leniency after he brutally murdered four people and attempted to murder her just because she was going to leave him. I don't understand the thought process behind it. Um, I can't even begin to comprehend the thought process behind it. And it's it's crazy enough just listening to stories of people who listen to this podcast and hearing the things they go through in church and uh, the way their abuse is mishandled, the way they are personally mishandled, the way people continue to support perpetrators and just say, well, you know, you just need to forgive him because he's obviously, you know, either they won't believe that a perpetrator did what a victim has come forward and said they did, or they'll just believe that, oh, it was this moment of weakness, a moment of temptation, and we should all just forgive and and love and move on. And unfortunately, it doesn't work like that for victims of sexual abuse. It definitely didn't work like that for this woman that I watched on Evil Lives Here on Investigation Discovery after she lived through the terror and trauma that we can't even comprehend of watching her four kids be brutally murdered in front of her face. She lived through that and then lived through an attempt on her own life and lived to tell about it, but lived to tell about it without any of her children for the rest of her life. And then the church that could have rallied behind her, her family that could have rallied behind her and said, hey, we're here for you. This evil has been perpetrated against you and we're going to do whatever it takes to walk with you through this and to hold you in your pain. And instead, they spent their effort and their energy trying to convince a judge to be lenient on the murderer. It just, it's mind boggling. And I mean, I know that we talk about this on the podcast and I don't really have an exact, I I mean, I don't have an answer for it. It's not like there's this formula that says, okay, if churches just would do X, Y, Z, everything would be better. I, I don't know. I just think that we need to get out of this idea. First of all, that there's such a thing as this radical grace and radical forgiveness. And like, I I feel like we're just, we need buzzwords sometimes in the church and certain things become popular. And so we say them and we use them. Even talking about God's love is, you know, I know that the song reckless love, everybody loves. And listen, I'm not here to trash like reckless love or anything, but first of all, I don't believe that God is reckless in any way, shape or form, even in his love. I I don't think it's reckless. I don't think that our forgiveness should be reckless. I don't think that our grace should be reckless. I don't think it should be radical either. Like I, I just don't think we need to add words to the Bible and add words to grace and add words to forgiveness and add concepts to them that really are completely and utterly unfair to people who have been brutalized by predators, to people who have been brutalized by sexual abuse. Um, You know, if we're going to add that to grace, if we're going to add the word radical to grace, if we're going to add it to forgiveness, we need to add it to repentance as well. You know, why aren't we expecting that? Why do we want to lavish all of this grace and mercy on people 
who have basically proven themselves to be wolves in sheep's clothing, pretending to be these wonderful Christians, while literally, trigger warning, are raping children. I, I feel like when we add pretty things like, oh, this is radical grace, it's just radical forgiveness, radical mercy, we are going beyond sugarcoating what has happened. We're putting blinders on our own eyes. It's like we're sticking our fingers in our ears and refusing to listen to the cries of victims. And no one is telling churches that you should be hateful to a perpetrator or that you should treat them like garbage or that you should say, God can never forgive you for the horrible thing that you've done. Um, No one's saying that a church should seek vengeance on a perpetrator. But my goodness, why are we fighting so hard to help perpetrators not have to live out the consequences to their actions? In eternity, the wages of sin is death. Like, we got it. You know, if you're talking eternity and and God forgiving sins and and being able to spend eternity with him and not spend it in hell, if, if you if you want to talk about it in that context, then fine. But Jesus's death on the cross did not remove the consequences for our sin in this life. It didn't. If you murder somebody, you go to prison for it when you're caught, because that's what it means to live under the laws of the land. And when you molest a child, same thing. Just because you're a Christian and just because God can forgive you does not mean that you should be absolved of any consequence in this life because that is not the way that it works. When you commit a crime, when you commit something as grievous and disgusting and despicable as child sexual abuse, there are consequences. And God's radical grace Radical forgiveness, reckless love, whatever you want to call it, does not erase those consequences in this life. It doesn't. We're supposed to obey the laws of the land. We're supposed to do what is right. And if we don't, there are consequences to our actions, regardless of whether or not we can find forgiveness and grace and mercy from God. Yeah, we can. But that doesn't mean we're absolved of those consequences. Oh, well, yes, I'm a God of forgiveness, which means you can murder whoever you want and not go to prison. Yes, I'm a God of forgiveness, which means you can rape as many children as you want, but still be able to sit in church on a Sunday morning with your victims and nobody's allowed to say anything about it. That is not how grace or mercy or forgiveness works. It's not. And I am so desperate to see churches begin to understand that like on a wide scale, because I know there are some that get it right. And that's great. I I love hearing stories about churches that, you know, they find out about sexual abuse in their midst, and they actually handle it really well. That's great. But there are so many churches that don't. And there are so many Christians that just believe you sprinkle grace on everything and call it radical. And then that means that we all live happily ever after. And, you know, pedophiles don't have to go to prison. Like, that's not how it works. And when we try to make it work that way, All we are doing is supporting perpetrators, and we are abandoning and re-victimizing the victims of these perpetrators' crimes. I just think that there needs to be so much more focus on the fact that this isn't just a thing that happened. It's not like a, a perpetrator accidentally breaks a vase that costs a lot of money. Like That's not what we're talking about. These crimes have victims, and these victims live out the consequences of the crimes. And our misguided belief in 
radical grace or radical forgiveness or whatever the word of the month happens to be or the new catchy Christian phrase happens to be ends up re-victimizing the people who have gone through these horrific things. You cannot coddle perpetrators. You cannot slather perpetrators with this reckless, radical forgiveness to the point of asking for consequences of these actions to be taken away. You cannot do that without hurting victims. You cannot do that without abandoning victims because supporting victims and coddling perpetrators cannot coexist. Those two things can't. And so as long as we're doing the one and we're doing it in the name of radical forgiveness and radical grace, we are full on recklessly abandoning victims and vulnerable people who need help. They need help because they've done nothing wrong. They've been preyed upon. And it seems like the church is spending all of its energy recklessly loving predators and wolves in sheep's clothing. And it has to stop. It, it has to stop. And it's something that I want to keep speaking out about until this myth of radical forgiveness is exposed for what it really is. Well, that's what I've got for you today. And as always, I would love to hear your feedback. You can join us on the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group page. Just search Survivor Sanctuary podcast on Facebook and answer the multiple choice member question. I'll let you into the group and you can join the conversation. Also, don't forget, you can find us on Patreon where you can become a patron of the podcast and get some great goodies like this week's patrons only podcast that is going to be releasing that you don't want to miss out on patreon.com slash survivor sanctuary. I'll catch you back here next time on another episode of survivor sanctuary. See you then. Thanks for listening to survivor sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.